This is an AMI podcast. Hey, Dave Brown here. If you enjoy this podcast portion of our show, remember you can watch it live every day at 9 a.m. Eastern time on AMI-tv. Why, hello, good morning. It's Wednesday, October the 25th, 2023. Welcome to Now with Dave Brown, coming to you on AMI-tv. I'm Dave Brown. Let's hit the horns and go. Coming up on the show today, Disability Employment Awareness Month continues... And so does the conversation. Seema Flower tells you about blind ambition and their advocacy for a more inclusive workforce. Here's a big time question for you. Maybe one of the biggest false binaries that exists in current political conversation. What is a solution to the housing crisis that can also apply to the climate change crisis? Journalist Arno Kopecki explores this fascinating question. And the Toronto Public Library has created a sensory room for children with sensory processing needs. Jessica Roy tells you all about it. That and so much more come in your way over the course of the next couple of hours on the mighty airwaves of AMI-tv. Thank you, wherever you may be, for taking a little bit of time to hang out with me. I do find the majority of the response that I get is from people in hotel rooms. Turns out, now with Dave Brown, huge in hotel rooms. Let's get to the top story of the day. The Bank of Canada will make its latest interest rate announcement at 10 a.m. Eastern Time this morning. Lisa Laporte sets the table. Forecasters are widely expecting the central bank to hold its key interest rate steady as the economy weakens and inflation slows. The key rate is currently sitting at 5%, the highest it's been since 2001. Meantime, Canada's annual inflation rate fell to 3.8% in September as price pressures weakened across the economy. Most economists believe interest rates are already sufficiently high to restore price stability and return inflation to the Bank of Canada's 2% target. Lisa Laporte, The Canadian Press. In a related story, there's still some back and forth between the central bank and politicians expressing their concerns about higher interest rates. You may recall that several premiers and NDP leader Jagmeet Singh publicly asked the bank to be mindful of the impact of higher rates and that impact that it has on people. Well, Bank of Canada Governor Tiff Macklem felt that could undermine his independence. BC Premier David Eby rejects that assertion. But yes, absolutely, I reserve the right to send a letter to Mr. Macklemore or whoever his uh, successors may be at the Bank of Canada to say that British Columbians are feeling the impacts of this decision or that decision. And I do have confidence in the governor to be able to make independent decisions, but to incorporate in those decisions uh, the information that comes from the people of British Columbia. Meanwhile, there's another story that relates to the economy. Food Banks Canada has released their annual hunger report. The data shows a significant increase in the number of people using food banks. For example, 2 million people visited a food bank in March. Greater Vancouver Food Bank's executive Cynthia Bolter describes what she's seeing on the ground. We see parents who are skipping meals so that their children can eat. We see people who haven't eaten in days. We see seniors who haven't had 
produce in months. It's quite staggering, you know, in addition to new immigrants, which is, you know, also a theme right across the country with food banks. Food Banks Canada CEO Kirsten Beardsley explains how this data makes her feel. You know, it gets me emotional because behind every single one of these numbers is a person. And I know what it takes for someone to get to the point where they're turning to a food bank for help. And so you replicate that two million times in a single month. And it's, it's heartbreaking to think of that all across the country. One more data point that's specifically relevant to people with disabilities. The report shows people on social assistance programs make up more than 40% of food bank users. Okay, from the economy to the daily update on decaying democracy south of the border. U.S. House Republicans have chosen Representative Mike Johnston as their latest nominee for Speaker of the House. Ben Thomas has the latest. I'm honored to have the support of my colleagues. Johnson of Louisiana is a member of the House GOP leadership team, but lower ranking. A lawyer specializing in constitutional issues, he'd rallied Republicans around former President Trump's legal effort to overturn the 2020 election results. Johnson's the fourth nominee for speaker and second of the day Tuesday. Democracy is messy sometimes, but it is our system. This conference that you see, this House Republican majority, is united. But the cycle of Republican infighting has frustrated many. We're going to restore your trust in what we do here. You're going to see a new form of government, and we are going to move this quickly. This group here is ready to govern. Ben Thomas, Washington. That's your look at the news. Here come the daily polls at Accessible Media on Twitter, at Accessible Media Inc. on Facebook. On Tuesday, you were asked, what is stopping you from starting your own business? 40% of you said money, 20% of you said time, 20% of you said no business idea, and 20% of you said other. A couple of Facebook responses here at Accessible Media Inc. Rob says, other lack of marketing skills that's an important one tanika writes in money to pay for the supplies and the marketing so a few folks chiming in there on the marketing side of owning your own business of course that topic related to rabia khader's topic at the uh, latter half of the first hour of the show you can find that on the podcast, if you were at all interested, the case that Rabia made in regards to entrepreneurship being a part of the inclusive employment puzzle. Today's Daily Poll, also going to relate to a topic later in the show, pedestrian pet peeves. Amy Amanti will be talking about floating bus stops in the middle of the streets of North Vancouver and how dangerous and irritating those bus stops can be. So I want to know from you, what is your biggest pest? Pet peeve as a pedestrian. A lot of peas there. What is your biggest pet peeve as a pedestrian? Is it sidewalk clutter, bike lanes, large groups of people, or other at Accessible Media on Twitter, at Accessible Media Inc. on Facebook? Elizabeth Moeller here in the GTA. We are used to those uh, floating uh, uh, bus stops as well. Of course, they're more for the streetcars, and I've always found those to be especially dangerous. Oh, Yeah. Yeah, big time, big time. I I often will will either take the streetcar with somebody or just avoid it altogether because that that in the tracks is really treacherous. Um, but in terms of my biggest pet peeve, it would have to be other no sidewalks. I lived on a street Ooh. where we had no sidewalks, and especially in the winter, 
it was really difficult to know, am I in the middle of the road? Am I on the side of the road? And then sometimes the driveways would be the same texture with your cane as the road. So it was difficult to know if you were veering into somebody's house. And there's quite a lot of streets in Toronto that have no sidewalks and it surprises me. It blows me away that any kind of residential development is ever allowed without at least a sidewalk on one side of the street. I, maybe sometimes it's tight, density is important, maybe you can't get both sides, but the idea that you can't have a sidewalk on a residential yeah. street is preposterous. And add to that recycling and garbage day where you have to veer into the middle of the road because Ugh. everybody puts their PIA. You know let, what I'm saying. Let alone snow, snow banks, et cetera. Yeah, there's a, uh, there, there's a street that I no longer use to walk into the office that is a double no sidewalk. And yeah, re recycling and garbage day uh, in the middle of a snowstorm, it's, uh, it's a rough ride. Laura Bain, what about you? What's your biggest pet peeve as a pedestrian? Yeah, I'm going to have to say groups of people, mm -hmm. and I think specifically uh, maybe people walking abreast, perhaps uh, seeming oblivious of people around or behind them. Uh, that can definitely get my blood pressure up. And I find that in that scenario, I keep tapping my cane louder and louder. <laughs> it can be uh, useful, kind of trying to get attention. And uh, I'm not proud to say I might have gently clipped an ankle or two in the past. <laughs> just, just a little shot in a, at, a, at an Achilles heel, you know, just, just a little something to remind someone, hey, get out of the way. Yeah, l listen, there, there's no problem with people deciding to hold hands or walk together. But if you're going to do it, you've got to have the spatial awareness to do it, right? Like it, it, it's, it's part of being a good uh, like global citizen is, hey, we can spend time, we can hold hands, we can walk together, but let's maybe not block entire sidewalks while we do it. Yeah, everyone moves at a different pace and that's fine. I feel like in Halifax, we're growing so quickly that maybe we haven't developed the sidewalk etiquette that I've seen in other places like New York where, um, you know, there's a little bit of a slow lane and a fast lane. And if you want to maybe move slower or walk as a group, you sort of move to the, the periphery rather than, than to the center. Yeah. Well, you know, Laura, I think we're really at this point, you're describing it, the population growth in Halifax and the HRM, it's really boomed. It's really really boomed in the last couple of years. You identified that last week in one of our conversations. But we're really at this point now where any kind of civic development should include a provision for wider sidewalks to account for the possibility of somebody using a mobility device or the possibility of just bigger density. You need wider sidewalks. Maybe it doesn't need to be, uh, you know, 75 feet wide, but there should be enough room for two people or three people to comfortably pass each other. Oh, yeah, for sure. I'm all about that and about even creating pedestrian zones. But of course, that space has to come from somewhere. And yeah. in an older city like Halifax, it is going to have to either come from reducing uh, parking or reducing uh, the available lanes in a road or, or reducing people's front lawns. So I think yeah. that's the that's the tension we run into, especially when we look at adding uh, bike lanes or um, bus lanes, which is, well, bus lanes and bike yeah. lanes, which yeah, is yeah. something we're trying to do mm -hmm. to, to get things moving a little easier here as well. <laughs> All the lanes, all the, all the multi-forms of transportation that are all important. Elizabeth, you explored yeah. uh, pedestrian-only zones in one of the roundtables earlier in the week. We did not get to wider sidewalks, but I'm really at this point now where I think the standard needs to be changed on what is an acceptable width for a sidewalk. 
Absolutely, especially in residential areas, they can be very narrow. Like even if you're doing sighted guide, it's difficult for two people to walk abreast. And I think, you know, just to the point about bike lanes, I think I'm seeing a lot more bikes on the sidewalks because people don't feel safe biking on the road. And I think part of that certainly has to do with it's it's a safety issue, but that's another big concern, especially as some cyclists don't have a bell and I'm walking and I'm like, oh my gosh, I, I somebody's coming right up close to me. So yeah, I think that's a, that's another really big issue is the the width of sidewalks and also bike lanes are a pet peeve, but if we don't have them, then people may not feel safe cycling on busy streets and go to the sidewalks, which is tricky. Yeah, so much of the redevelopment conversation is about doing the redevelopment properly and there's a lot of cyclists who don't even like the way the current bike lanes are constructed. Yeah. So uh, there, there's a wholesome, holistic, intersectional conversation to be had that could take up the rest of the hour, but we do not have time for that. So Laura, Elizabeth, thank you both for your insights on this one. I wanna hear from you out there in listener land in the viewer vortex at Accessible Media on Twitter, at Accessible Media Inc. on Facebook. You can also chime in via email, feedback at ami.ca, feedback at ami.ca, or pick up the phone, 1-866-509-4545, 1-866-509-4545. Don't forget, just because you're not watching the show live on the mighty airwaves of AMI-tv doesn't mean your voice can't be heard in this conversation. Maybe you're binge listening over the weekend on the podcast network. If something really ruffles you up, use those points of contact. You can still engage with these questions or these ideas, even if it's not in real time live on the air. So at Accessible Media on Twitter, at Accessible Media Inc. on Facebook, feedback at AMI.ca or one 509 Coming up next, Disability Employment Awareness Month continues. So does the conversation about the importance of inclusive hiring and a more inclusive workforce. Seema Flower will tell you about blind ambition and their advocacy for more inclusive workplaces. This is Now with Dave Brown on AMI-tv. Welcome back. It's now with Dave Brown on AMI-tv. Disability Employment Awareness Month continues. There's been plenty of conversation on the show, and there's going to be plenty more. As you know, the rate of employment for people with disabilities is low in Canada, and it's low across the world. There are improvements, though. Every now and then, you have to think about optimism, and there's lots of advocacy work being done to create even more equal opportunities. Seema Flower is the founder of Blind Ambition in the UK and has been working abroad to evolve the movement of disability inclusion in the workforce. Hey, good morning, Seema. Great to chat with you today. Good morning. Thank you so much for having me on your show. How are you? So, Seema... I'm, I'm great. Great to have you here. The topic is so important. Just before you dive all the way in here, what's at the core of Blind Ambition's mission? Uh, the core of Blind Ambition's uh, um, ambition is actually to uh, promote inclusivity in society, in all places of society, but also concentrating on the workplace as well. So what kind of conversations are you having with folks? What's your approach in terms of dealing with organizations and educating them about people with disabilities? 
It's about actually getting into organisations and talking about the recruitment and selection of people with disabilities. That's the first stage, opening up that talent gap, you know, filling that talent gap, basically, which is missing. And then once you've actually got people, you know, selected and recruited, it's about maintaining those people within your organisation and promoting and fostering an inclusive environment where those people can excel. What's the trickle-down bid like? Once you've made that impact, you've had that connection, companies are opening their doors, they're being more open-minded. What's the trickle-down that you're observing? I think the, the trickle-down is, is good. I mean, um, you know, in, um, promoting people with disabilities is, is increasing, not at the rate that I'd like to see, but it is improving slowly but surely. You know, we have a huge disability employment gap in the UK. Like you said, this is a worldwide problem. Um, I do a lot of work globally in terms of delivering webinars and um, and training. And we find this, you know, at all, all places around the world. So we need to try and address this as much as we can so that people with disabilities who are extremely talented and have got a lot to offer, very determined, very resilient, um, are able to be able to have places in employment. I work under the assumption, because I observe it, and obviously as a disability-focused network, we cover the issue of disability employment and inclusive hiring in more accessible workplaces fairly extensively. My observation from like the top, top, top level looking down 10,000 feet way above, it's getting a little bit better but progress is slow. What's your observation about perhaps the change that's occurred in the last 10 years or so? Um, I think the, the difficulty is the intention is there for people, um, you know, employers, senior management, the intention is, is there, but they're not moving at the faster pace as we could as we could do. So yes, while there has been some progress within the last 10 years, it's not as rapid as we would hope it it would be. And I think this is down to the fact that, you know, um, it's to do with a couple of things, really. It's to do with budgets. For example, disability is always one of the last areas to get addressed. So in terms of training, uh, in terms of making improvements, making reasonable adjustments, you know, um, employer employers are thinking it's going to be really costly. They've got their own preconceptions about, you know, what it's like to have what it's like to create a an inclusive environment and, and in real terms really if they just make some basic reasonable adjustments that would open it up to most people with disabilities and make life a lot easier for them what's your observation in regards to even the companies that are understanding the importance and making some of those changes what's your observation in regards to actually creating a ladder to success or, or a pathway to success to move to middle management, upper management, executive. What's in Canada, it's really bad. Like, like the situation for getting the foot in the door is getting better, but the situation for climbing the ladder is absolutely terrible. And by the way, I'm even just like there's ableism in the expression <laughs> of climbing the ladder. But but what's your observation out there in the UK and some of the international work you're doing in regards to pathways to do career development, not just getting a job? Yeah, I think you made a good point there. Absolutely. We are getting the pathways opened up. The doors are opening. People are letting, being let in. And yes, they're getting some recruitment. But you're absolutely right in terms of career progression uh, and promotions. 
people with disabilities are still getting overlooked. They're not getting the same opportunities as their able-bodied counterparts. So we're still battling that. And as a careers advisor, you know, when, we, when I'm talking to people in terms of advocating and looking at their next role, this is something that we come up against as well. And I think the other thing I'd like to say is that, you know, whilst we might have people um, from HR or training or learning resources implementing and inviting people like myself from Blind Ambition to, you know, deliver training to the inclusivity. It's people at the top, top level um, and then senior and middle management, they're not always at these training events. So, yes, they're sort of making the right noises, but they actually need to, um, you know, walk the walk, not just do the talking. Yeah, there, there's a campaign going on in Canada right now called A Seat at the Table, which is all about getting people with disabilities on boards, at, at the board level, sitting there helping with those decisions. Because I think that's what, what, what you're really getting at there, what you're referring to, is you sort of get these ideologies of equity, but they only expect the rank and file employees to be mindful or abide by those equity principles. And that lens just sort of disappears as you climb up the ladder. Exactly. And I think I think you're absolutely right. You know, people who are marginalised in society do deserve a seat at the table. And that's very much the approach that blind ambition come, comes from. And actually, um, we've just actually gone undergone our logo and, um, you know, sort of revised it. And it's it's about having that seat at the table. You know, it's about having that seat at the table and being able to have that voice. The Conference Board of Canada, alongside the Rickanson Foundation, and a lot of the work they do about creating more accessible workforces and more accessible businesses in general, talks about the spending power of Canadians with disabilities. What's the situation like in the UK and, and, and abroad when it comes to the spending power of a consumer base of people with disabilities? I, I can't exactly remember the exact amount, but it's it's a huge amount that we call it the purple pound. So the spending power of disabled people and their families is a huge market share. That when I'm working with organisations and they're customer based and then you know they're, they're selling uh, goods and services, we're trying to say to them, don't ignore that market because that market will vote with their feet. If they're finding that your service or your goods are not um, accessible to them, they will vote with their feet and they will go somewhere else because they have lots and lots of choices. So the spending power is there. And I think business owners really need to wake up to the, the idea that if they don't make things accessible for people who have disabilities, then they're going to lose um, a lot of money. And Seema, I think that really connects to what you and I were just referring to, right? That the perception of disability can sometimes be so limited that it is, oh, people unemployed, people on social uh, social assistance, yeah. that it forgets that there is still a large chunk of the population of people with disabilities who are in the workforce and who are having success. So, so it's again, it's that it's that very narrow view of disability that can exist societally. Exactly. And I think people, like we said before, it's about society. They have their own sort of preconceived ideas about what a, a stereotypical disabled person's like. You know, like you said, being on social, low income, um, not having a job. But it, it's, 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 to be honest with you, it's, it's the, the opposite. A lot of people with disabilities are actually wanting to work. They want to work. They want to make a contribution to society. And once they've actually got that job, they're really, really loyal and really, really committed. In fact, probably more loyal and committed to somebody who doesn't have a disability at all because they've had to face quite a lot of adversity to actually get that uh, employment in the first place. 
Seema, yesterday on the show, the founder of Disability Without Poverty, Rabia Hadar, came on the show and talked about the prospect of entrepreneurship and where that may fit into the puzzle of the inclusive hiring and inclusive workplace landscape. What are your thoughts in regards to the opportunity that Entrepreneur presents? You know, you were honored in 2020 as part of uh, Shaw Trust's Power 100 list. So you are an entrepreneur yourself. What do you believe the, the power of entrepreneurship offers to the community more broadly? Well, I, I think it's brilliant, it's brilliant, to be honest with you. I think a lot of people with disabilities are actually forced to go into entrepreneurship because they've not been able to secure a job working with another organisation. And to be honest with you, it's probably, um, a, you know, a blessing in disguise for them because it gives you that autonomy. Now, I've not worked for an organisation for 20 years now. I've run a series of businesses. And when I'm doing careers coaching and working with people as individuals, that is something that we always explore because that is an area where some of the disability can have control over, you know, in terms of whether they're having a good day or a bad day, how many hours they want to work, you know, how much time they want to put into it, who they want to work with, where they're working, all those sort of things that come into, into the mix. So I think entrepreneurship is, is a brilliant idea, and I think we find a lot of people with, with disabilities actually do turn to that. What do you think could be done to foster that? Because I know that that conversation certainly started brambling up. I want to say in the last six or seven years, I, I, used to, I did a couple stories back when I was a bureau reporter for AMI in Ottawa about programs designed to be a little bit of a launching pad for entrepreneurs with disabilities. But what do you think could be done to foster that? I, I know that the entrepreneurial spirit is unique and it's not for everybody, but what do you think could be done to foster Foster that opportunity for individuals. I think. I think if if the, if governments um, could actually um, implement some sort of formal, um, you know, some, some sort of formal training and maybe some sort of associational force, more some support for people who are wanting to be entrepreneurs, that would be really really helpful. So, say for example, at the moment, I'm working quite closely with the Royal National Institute for the Blind, one of the leading charities for vision, for sight loss. And we've come together and we deliver a 16-week program uh, around employment and next steps. So we look at things like entrepreneurship, um, training, it could be education or it could be just uh, being your own boss, as it were, but also being in employment. And I think if there was more concentration around support for people and a mechanism, for mechanism in place, that'd be really, really helpful. It would encourage people to explore entrepreneurship, but also have that infrastructure and sort of structure uh, for people to be able to utilize. Seema, you've been really generous with your time this morning. I've got one more question for you. You've already accomplished a lot with Blind Ambition. You're already impacting society more broadly. What about the future? Where do you want to go from here? Uh, well, for Blind Ambition, we would like to, you know, um, be, be have more of a global presence basically maybe do some work with with you guys in canada as well so we're open to you know to doing that but we want to see a, a global sort of presence with blind ambition and really really inc increase the amount of pe people that we're working with um in terms of employers and organizations government departments and so forth but also we have um, another branch to us which is called blind ambition international which looks after you know working abroad as well but also looking after people in the community with a vision impairment and other disabilities. So we, we just want to make sure we're actually growing as much as we can and spreading the word as much as we can and just 
basically increasing increasing people's knowledge around disability and how they can make and accept people with disabilities and you know treat them with dignity and respect this is what that's what we sort of aim for hey asima just on the way out here i really appreciate the time where should you want to you want to build this global presence let's see if a couple of our viewers and listeners can check you out where should they go Okay, so they can find me. Uh, I'm on LinkedIn under Seema Flower Blind Ambition, but also our website is www.blindambition.co.uk. Right on. Hey, Seema, thank you for this. Thank you for all the hard work. Keep it up and let's uh, check in again down the road. Great. Thank you so much. And thank you for all the work that you're doing. Thank you. Uh, it's our pleasure. That's Seema Flower, the founder of Blind Ambition in the UK. For more information, you can visit blindambition.co.uk. That's blindambition.co.uk. Coming up after the break, the Toronto Public Library has created a sensory room for children with sensory processing needs. Jessica Roy tells you all about it. This is Now with Dave Brown on AMI-tv. Welcome back. It's now with Dave Brown on AMI-tv. Public libraries do so much more than just lend out books. They are community hubs. They're innovators. The Toronto Public Library has created a sensory room for children with sensory processing needs. Jessica Roy is the, sensor, is the sensory room team lead for the project. The program is based out of Sir Walter Stewart Branch. Hey, good morning, Jessica. Thanks for stumbling over your title there. I did a very poor job. <laughs> but, uh, but how was the uh, sensory room developed? So the sensory room was developed following consultation with community agencies that support children with disabilities and their families and caregivers, uh, also with direct feedback from families. And the research was conducted by the Accessibility Services for Children work group at Toronto Public Library. So, so what kind so, of, oh, sorry, go ahead. My, my apologies. No, go, go ahead. Well, I was just going to say along those lines, what are some of the best practices and research that you're pulling from that goes into creating the space? So the team conducted an environmental scan of sensory rooms across North America, North America, and we identified 18 existing spaces in libraries, hospitals, schools, healthcare facilities, and community centers. And we reached out to those organizations to learn more about their spaces and to benefit from their lessons learned. And what we learned is that there's a lot of different kinds of spaces out there, and they're used differently by a variety of people. And so a good principle is a flexibility of design to meet diverse needs. Um, so furniture that is movable, um, uh, lighting that can be adjusted, equipment that you can turn off and on, blinds that can be uh, raised or lowered, allows people to use the space in a way that uh, best meets their needs, their particular needs. Uh, we learned about the eight senses and different sensory processing difficulties, and we tried to consider all these different sensory needs in designing our space and being aware that some people will need more sensory input and others will need less sensory input. So they're able to adjust the room to those needs. I, I think, oh, sorry, oh. go ahead. I, I, I keep catching you on these pauses. You keep taking these deep breaths. I keep catching you. Sorry about that. Go ahead. 
Um, I was just going to say, we we also developed equipment criteria in talking to these organizations, and uh, we learned about the importance of staff training and resources uh, in order to be able to support customers who are coming to use the space. Um, and we also considered the our space in particular, which uh, is unstaffed, so having um, equipment that people can easily use and uh, doesn't require a lot of maintenance or instruction. You got into the features a little bit there, but scratch a little bit deeper in terms of what you and your colleagues wanted to install to sort of bring the room to life. So this space uh, includes uh, an image projector, which projects images onto the wall and simulates visual senses. It also offers opportunity for object, shape, and color recognition, so it can start a spark a conversation between a parent and child. Um, there's fiber optic wall carpet. So these are black acrylic carpets that are on the wall. They have glowing pins of light that are safe for children to touch. They're not hot. Um, and it provides soft lighting and it also insulates the room and uh, absorbs sound. Uh, we have, this is a magic circle. It's heat sensitive surface that changes color with touch. We also have a rainbow air tube. This is a column of light that cycles through, uh, slowly through different colors, and kids can change colors using a touch response control pad, which encourages motor skills and helps them to learn about cause and effect. There's a Soma acoustic cushion, so customers can connect to this through their Bluetooth and then amplify their own music that they're familiar to and uh, feel the musical vibrations in their body. Uh, and it's actually placed in this beanbag chair. There's also one in the podium. Uh, you can see in this image, um, uh, gel, or, or you may be able to see uh, gel floor tiles. These are squishy, colorful gel floor tiles that kids can um, squish with their hands and feet. We also have tactile circles on the wall where they, that kids can explore uh, texture, color, and also sound uh, when they touch it. Uh, we also have balancing equipment. So this allows kids to explore their vestibular sense and also proprioception, and they can use it to rock in ways that they might find soothing. Uh, we have different types of uh, soft seating. So there's a beanbag chair, as I mentioned, also squishy and firm foam surfaces so they can explore the different uh, textures. We have a custom mural. So this is a constant image that can soothe kids uh, because it's a predictable and unchanging point of focus that's always there. We do change out um, the uh, image projector slides so other parts of the room can uh, change and there's movement and changes in color, but that stays static. Uh, pretty amazing. Sounds like a fantastic room. Thank you so much for taking the time to describe some of those images as well. It's much appreciated. How could a room like this end up being a template for other Toronto Public Library locations? Yeah, so uh, S. Walter Stewart was an ideal location for this pilot because it has ample parking, there's a large children's area, there's also elevator access, and we were very fortunate to get a generous donation um, in the memory of Jay Blue, who is a community member who uh, was a, a teacher. Um, and uh, so we were very glad to do this pilot. We're still in the evaluation stage. Um, and so uh, we haven't yet made, we don't know what will come for the future, but we will uh, use that evaluation to inform future considerations. Um, so we're just testing, engaging the feasibility of sensory rooms at Toronto Public Library. And what are the access requirements? Who is able to access the sensory room at uh, Walter Stewart? 
So uh, TPL children's spaces, including the sensory room at S. Walter Stewart, are geared to children ages 12 and under and their parents and caregivers. And the space is designed to support children with sensory processing needs, but it can be enjoyed by all children. Jessica, I've had the opportunity over the years to do a couple stories about different sensory rooms in different places. I always find them to be really appealing. I can really see where sort of the universal design comes in in terms of comfort and relaxation in the space. Have you had a chance to actually reap the uh, efforts of your own hard work? Have you had a chance to relax and unplug in the space? Yes, uh, I think anyone can benefit from a sensory room. Uh, we've done staff training in the room. We've also uh, explored the room with the donor family. And uh, I have to say, um, anyone can can get a benefit from that. I'm sure parents who uh, visit with their children are enjoying it as well. Um, there's a lot to explore. Uh, we were there for an hour and there was still, uh, we were able to explore each of the items, but I'm, you know, it's always changing. There's new um, images uh, being shown with the projector. So, and there's always more to, to explore. Fantastic. Jessica, thank you for this. Have a great day. Thank you for all the hard work that you and your colleagues are doing. Thanks very much for having me. That's Jessica Roy, Sensory Room Team Lead at the Toronto Public Library. If you want to book a 60-minute visit at the Sensory Room, you can call 416-396-3975, 416-396-3975, or ask at the Children's Desk at the Sir Walter Stewart Branch. Coming up in 60 seconds, Elizabeth Moeller has the weather story of the day. But first, here is Canadian press reporter Karen Rebo with your morning business minutes. Canada's main stock index moved lower yesterday, led by energy and battery metals. Toronto's TSX index lost 60 points to close at 18,986. New York's Dow Jones average surged 204 points, and the Nasdaq gained 121. In Tokyo this morning, the Nikkei index rose 207 points, and our dollar is trading overseas this morning a little lower at 72.69 cents U.S. The Bank of Canada will announce its latest interest rate decision this morning. The federal government has instructed workers and management in the St. Lawrence Seaway strike to sit down with a mediator. More than 360 uniform members at 13 of the 15 locks along the key trade corridor walked off the job Sunday. And Canadian National Railway is reporting a drastic 24% drop in quarterly profit to $1.1 billion in the third quarter, hit by forest fires and floods, as well as the fallout from the B.C. port workers strike. From the Canadian Press Business Desk, I'm Karen Rebo. Thank you very much, Karen. That interest rate announcement is coming your way in about 19 minutes. As soon as that information is available to me, I will share it with you. The other observation from that report, uh, people are going hungry at CN Rails. Only $1.1 billion in profit last quarter. How will they feed their children? Let's go to the weather story with Elizabeth Moeller. Elizabeth, you're looking to the Atlantic provinces this morning. We are. We are going Atlantic today, and we're looking at Fredericton, which had the latest start of the chilly season on record. So get ready in Fredericton. The last time that the temperatures dipped below the freezing mark in Fredericton was on May 10th. 2023, also my birthday. But residents woke up this morning to a temperature of minus 2.5 degrees. And that replaces October 2005, October 22, which was the previous record holder of the latest start of Fredericton's chilly weather season. 
And while Tuesday's below freezing temperature is a sign of things to come, fall is a season of temperatures that can and do trampoline up and down. The cold temperatures will feel like a thing of the past when temperatures will rise to the high teens and even into the 20s, Wednesday to Saturday this week. The conditions are caused by a high-pressure system over the southeastern United States that will bring more air into much of the maritime provinces, and we will see daytime highs around 10 degrees above seasonal, so enjoy those temperatures. Elizabeth, thank you for this. Uh, certainly stay You're warm welcome. today, but this uh, yeah, weather that is passing through uh, Toronto and Montreal over the next few, few days is heading your way to the I Atlantic next. Coming up after the break... Floating bus stops are becoming an issue in the North Shore of Vancouver. Community reporter Amy Amanti fills you in on some of those issues. This is Now with Dave Brown on AMI-tv. Welcome back. It's now with Dave Brown on AMI. Navigating public transit can be daunting, especially when bus stops are designed poorly or put in deeply inconvenient locations. This is something that's on the mind of Amy Amanti. Amy is a community reporter in Vancouver, British Columbia. Hey, good morning, Amy. Oh, good morning, Dave. So, Amy, you've been encountering floating bus stops in the North Shore area. Floating bus stops are located on the island or the median in the middle of the street. Terrible place to put a bus stop. Uh, how common are these in the North Shore area? Well, they're they're becoming more and more common. This has been a conversation that's been popping up ah, literally for the last couple of years between many of the municipalities, excuse me, in the greater Vancouver area. The greater Vancouver area has 44 municipalities. The North Shore is three of them. Wow. Um, right. So, you know, uh, Vancouver proper, I suppose you could call it. Um, has put has built these um, based on models that have come from other municipalities outside of British Columbia. Um, and so, you know, once they put them in, other municipalities go, oh, well, they're doing it. Let's do it, too. Um, and some of the other municipalities have advisory committees that are saying, whoa, 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 wait a second. Right. Um, you know, this was big on Vancouver Island that, um, you know, maybe had a human rights complaint around something similar with bike lanes in their area and floating bus stops. And so this has been a conversation that's been going around for a little while. And they are so complicated. I don't know, Dave, have you experienced one of these? I try to avoid them as much as possible. They're super common in downtown Toronto mm. for the streetcars, right? You have to yeah. cross into the middle of the street to get a streetcar. Yeah. In a lot of cases, it might not be a floating median. It's actually you yeah. running through traffic to get onto a streetcar, which seems like especially poor. But the concept yeah. is the same. The idea is that you're pulling public transit away from the sidewalk. So from you're creating yeah. a situation where you've got to move through a bike lane or move through yeah. a street to get to the public transit. And Amy, there's a reason why I choose not to take uh, streetcars yeah. downtown because I don't want to get hit by a car. Yeah, and and I think that, that one of the bigger problems is like if you had a controlled intersection where, you know, the, the light goes red and you had to cross the street to the medium and you could do that safely, maybe but the bike lanes become an even bigger problem because bikes don't stop 
for you, right? Um, bikes tend to whiz by and you don't hear them um, until you get hit by them, right? They don't tend to uh, stop for pedestrians. They don't tend to pay attention to stop signs or stop lights the same way, um, depending on whether it's a like a literal controlled intersection or not. I've got one right in front of my house. Um, and, it, you know, it is really complicated to try and navigate. Um, so the more bike lanes we put in because we want to, you know, uh, promote cyclists who are commuting, not just cyclists who are, you know, recreational cyclists, but commuting yeah. cyclists who it's, are it's, at it's, faster it's, speeds. It's part of the green transportation revolution. It is. Like and like it it, and, it, and it does need to happen. I, I think you may have painted a little too broadly with that brush, Amy, but there are lots of cyclists who do disobey streets like street rules. Yeah, certainly, certainly there are. And and I just, I find that they sneak up on me. And so, you know, some of the conversations about that are like how we delineate, you know, pedestrians on sidewalks from the bike lanes, right? And that's even, that's complicated too, right? Um, because you have to be able to cross over. So for example, what's happening here, one of the things that is happening is if you've got a delineation between your sidewalk and your bike lane on the road, so some kind of raised medium, for example, between those two surfaces, that's got to cross over where you would uh, per cross perpendicular to cross the street and the bike lane to get to the floating bus stop. Right. So now you've put in an additional hazard for a pedestrian who has a lack of sight to cross over, right? Because you're still having to cross, you still have to have uh, the pedestrian across, you know, the pedestrian bound through the bike lane. Yeah. So then, you know, and then what they do is they ask folks with sight loss to look at drawings of these things uh, before they install them and try to explain them sort of in uh, in practicality instead of saying, you know, here's a, a tactile you can feel or let's take you to a site visit where you can experience one. They try and explain three examples. Yeah, this, it, this drives it, me bonkers. It, right? do, it, it doesn't it doesn't represent the real world. It doesn't represent the real world experience. It doesn't at all. But what they do from a from a from an advisory committee level is they say, here are three options. Pick what's pick what you think is best instead of saying, what is accessible? What do you need to feel safe? And none of the three options are great options. So you're forced into this almost binary of trying to pick, well, what's lesser of the three evils when mm -hmm. none of those three things are really safe. But then they go to council and they say things like, well, you know, the advisory committees chose option C as the safest. So let's go with option C, whereas that doesn't mean it's a safe option, but then all of a sudden it gets endorsed as an option. Yeah, it's it's the guise of consultation, right? That, that yeah. people say, oh, well, we consulted. We consulted and this That's is what right. they picked, but it wasn't yeah. an actual meaningful consultation. Yeah. Amy, I, I do I do think it's worth like pumping the brakes for a second here though, yeah. because there is some merit in creating segregated space for public transit. Yes. Like there like there really is, but you can't do it haphazardly and you yeah. can't create these situations where it's, oh, you've got to cross in the middle of the street to get to a meeting in the middle of the street, like you identified before. It needs to be through a controlled traffic light or stop sign scenario. And then that median you have in the middle of the street needs to be big enough. This goes back to the wider sidewalks conversation mm -hmm. that was had as part of the daily poll today. You need mm -hmm. to have a median that's actually wide enough that people can safely be on that median and not potentially get knocked into the road. Well, you know, um, Dave, we I think we also need to look at uh, other cultures and other parts of the world. So like, you know, places like Vancouver, for example, we have a, a strong bike culture, but we don't have the kind of bike culture that like, say, Amsterdam has mm -hmm. full of trolleys, 
full of cyclists. Um, and so that kind of bike culture has a different level of, um, I don't want to use the word respect loosely, but they have a different level of being able to integrate with pedestrian foot traffic uh and with uh vehicle traffic right they they commute they, they they have a different bike relationship culture and so and their trolleys are in the middle of their roads but but you feel safe crossing you feel safe integrating wow. with <laughs> i felt very safe my experience uh, 20 years ago uh maybe wasn't quite as safe but i didn't quite understand their 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 design principles uh, so i think well, my, maybe my, I... my experience in 2019 wasn't too bad okay okay that's um, good <laughs> but but you know if we if we maybe if we maybe took our cues from from places that had maybe a little bit more updated knowledge you know, instead of just trying to throw, because what, what I feel like is it's like a patch, like a thrown, a patchwork attempt without communicating with, with folks who are, who have no other options than to use buses, than to cross bike lanes, right? If we're, if we're, if we're not consulting with the most vulnerable of people who really have no choices, but to access transportation in this way, you know, if, if we look at, if, if we don't, if we don't pay attention to our most vulnerable people in society, that is, you know, I think that's how we need to measure, uh, m measure a country, measure yeah, a municipality. I think is how we take care of our most most vulnerable people. Certainly, certainly. Uh, Amy, what's going on in regards to community meetings in relation to floating bus stops? Yeah, so um, certainly what's happening right now, TransLink is, is uh, our, our uh, transit authority here. They're having ongoing conversations, stakeholder meetings um, around this, this conversation. So that's one part of it. And the North Shore right now, I'll be a part of some of these uh, stakeholder meetings that are happening in November. They already have, as you know, existing floating bus stops. And so groups of us will be going out uh, to review these existing floating bus stops. I don't know what can be done to change them now because they're already built into the infrastructure. My hope is that we can circumvent any future ones that are built, um, mm. which is also kind of a problem because then you don't have any consistency in how there's design, right? So right. You know, as a blind person, you come across them differently every time. Yeah, the, tw the 2020 floating bus stop doesn't represent the 2025 floating bus stop right. and the access issues uh, remain the same when there's not consistency. Got uh, Amy, yeah. got to be quick on these last yeah. two, but the Alliance for the Equality of Blind Canadians is hosting a two-part workshop about emergency preparedness. So uh, what's on deck here? Because obviously that's a pretty broad topic, but it's an important one. Yeah, I think, you know, the essentials of this this topic really, Dave, is that the Alliance for Quality of Blind Canadians in British Columbia here is looking to create resource materials on how folks can better be prepared for the big emergencies, whatever those are, flooding, earthquake, fires, all, all from all different aspects, right? And so they're asking folks from uh, the blind partially sighted community to get involved and to share what your barriers are, um, what, uh, how you are, you know, how you prepare yourself for any of these things that might happen. And so there's a couple of uh, stakeholder meetings, one of them's tomorrow, um, but there also are some coming up in November as well. Um, so. I think, you know, you can probably check out your blog for all those details and links if you want to. Nope. to Nope. nope, can't check out the blog anymore, but I will no. give you the I'll give you the website right now, blindcanadians.ca, blindcanadians.ca. That's blindcanadians.ca. Okay, Amy, one more. It's a fundraiser, vocalized music, fundraiser. musical bingo fundraiser for the first time in four years. 
they're hosting first time in four years well we had a little thing called the pandemic um and as you know the theater and the arts went dark and vocali does uh, a live description for theater and arts and cultural events i talk about vocali a lot so coming up on november the 4th we have our musical bingo fundraiser uh fun time for all and so if you're interested in tickets um please join us at mooses down under pub so uh, vocali.ca is where you can find those tickets uh there's still some available and uh you know everything you expect from a fundraiser and more and uh, all the folks at mooses down under are have aussie accents which of course makes so much fun. <laughs> yeah you've, you've had a lot of nice things to say about mooses down under before november, great folks yeah november the 4th 6 p.m november the 4th 6 p.m mooses down under pub and info at vocali.ca info at vocali.ca is the email address vocali.ca is the website amy thank you for this have a great day yeah you too dave that's Amy Amanti, community reporter in Vancouver, British Columbia. In 60 seconds, Britney Spears has released her memoir, and Laura Baines got a review in the Entertainment Report. But first, Google's new phone is changing how people take group pictures. Mike Dubusky explains how in Tech Trends. The new Pixel 8 Pro gets the expected bevy of new camera hardware, says Michael Prospero, editor-in-chief of Tom's Guide. A 50-megapixel camera on the back, which can also record raw photos and video. But the camera's software gets something less expected, a feature called Best Take. Prospero says it's intended for group pictures. The camera takes a burst of photos when you click the shutter. And then... If one person is blinking in one shot, they might not be in another one, so you'll be able to select that one. And then you'll be able to sort of mix and match faces from different photos it took so you can get one shot that's perfect, if you will. Google says it's aimed at parents of fidgety kids, but some have raised concerns about its potential to misrepresent the photo's subjects. With Tech Trends, I'm Mike Dubusky, ABC News. Thank you very much, Mike. Britney Spears has a new memoir out. And Laura Bain, that's your focus in today's entertainment report. Yeah, that's right, Dave. You foreshadowed it a bit last week, and now the day has arrived. We're talking about the new memoir, The Woman in Me, which just dropped yesterday. Uh, so you can find it pretty much everywhere, but it's available on Audible, and that's where I gave it a listen. Uh, so the book contains revelations, uh, which have been all over the headlines, including that Spears began drinking alcohol with her mom in junior high and that she was pressured by uh, her boyfriend at the time, Justin Timberlake, to end a pregnancy in the early 2000s. And of course, the book talks about her 13-year conservatorship in which her father was given control over pretty much every aspect of her life. So about the conservatorship, she writes, the conservatorship stripped me of my womanhood, made me into a child. I became more of an entity than a person on stage. I found this to be a super thought-provoking memoir, um, and it had me reflecting on the extent to which dominant social narratives rooted in patriarchy contributed to Britney's loss of agency. I think it's a little bit too easy to try and pin it on her family. I think we sort of maybe hold a collective responsibility. Uh, and so what I want to ask you, Dave, is do we as a society allow female pop stars today to embody more nuanced roles than we did 20 years ago? Laura, it's such a good question social media is a horrible place like it's a horrible toxic place but it has created avenues and venues in the freedom of communication and speaking directly to people that at least protects celebrities and female celebrities to a degree from some of the more tabloid-esque 
coverage that used to exist in media spaces and therefore trickle down into more broad conversations about female celebrities 20 years ago. I'm not saying it's good. I'm saying that it's better. And I think that's a really important distinction. Just because you've given people the democratization of communication, that they're not needing to use middle people as... Um, as avenues to get their point across. I don't know how much that would have changed for Britney Spears because things spiraled pretty fast for her over the course of a couple of years. But I do think about positive cases in people like Demi Lovato, who was going through their own struggle with addiction and mental health issues and was able to sort of continue to be their own advocate and their own voice to counter a lot of media narratives about them as they were transitioning away from being a Disney princess towards a adult life. I, I do think that it's better, Laura, but I still think that it's quite bad. It's better than it was 20 years ago, but just like society is still just a very toxic place towards uh, women, especially young women, especially, especially young women in the public eye. Yeah, absolutely. And I think, Dave, that you're you're astute there to raise the issue of social media because, uh, you know, certainly the tabloids, when you talked about that time of Britney kind of spinning out, I think... Uh, even the way that that's viewed now, she presents a very different picture of what was going on in her memoir. And keep in mind, she had just had two children within two years. She was going through a divorce, like she was being hounded by the tabloids. And I think, you know, she really just didn't have an avenue to get her story out at all. Mm. And I think uh, social media has allowed for that to some extent and I think perhaps lessened our appetite for things like uh you know photos and and kind of celebrity gossip because you know if I if I want to hear about a celebrity I'm more likely to go to their Instagram than I am to you know pick up a a tabloid at the grocery and, yeah, store and entertainment weekly or a tabloid or people magazine or whatever it might be uh Laura you you pounded through this entire memoir in one afternoon I'm beyond impressed uh what surprised you about it what were your thoughts on it um, yeah, you know, I had to be honest, I just, I wasn't a Britney fan back in the day. It just wasn't the type of music that I was listening. I, like I was 14 when Oops, I Did It Again, uh, or uh, Hit Me Baby One More Time. Mm -hmm, that was mm -hmm. it. That, you know, it just wasn't, uh, wasn't my jam when I was 14. Uh, so I learned a lot about Britney and uh, I think what surprised me was how passionate she was about her artistry and about creative control. And she didn't want to be doing these same sort of stale Vegas shows where she was just doing her her hits and that was really um, very stifling for her. Um, but yeah, I, I think maybe some of what surprised me is just how reflective it is. And I hope that sort of the wider lessons uh, about what we do to mega stars, especially female mega stars, doesn't get lost in the revelations and yeah. the, books, the, books, yeah. the more salacious relationship details. I mean, at the end of the day, who really cares, right? <laughs> well, you know, it's it's fun to gossip about, but you're right. There comes there it comes this, there, there comes this role where at what point should the mass media stay away from salacious? And the mass media has a terrible habit of uh, leaning into the salacious. Laura, you did not, though, and I'm so grateful for that. Have a wonderful day. Talk to you tomorrow. Yeah, thanks, Dave. I guess I just mean there are more more interesting things at play here. Yeah, you have a have a great day as well. <laughs> there are definitely more interesting things at play. That is Laura Bain, entertainment reporter, coming up after the break. The province of British Columbia is dealing with some cybersecurity issues. Not so much the governments, but a couple of the businesses in BC. 
Nicole Reese will have that as part of the regional news update. This is Now with Dave Brown on AMI-tv. Welcome back. It's now with Dave Brown on AMI-tv. I'm Dave Brown. It's Wednesday, October the 25th, 2023. Coming up in the second hour of the show, there are a couple of simultaneous crises happening in Canada. You've got the housing crisis. You have the climate change crisis. And of course, you have a lot of the economic issues that are brambling to the surface as well. So what's a solution that can address climate change? and housing. Journalist Arno Kopecki will explore that question. And Billboard released their list for the best 500 pop songs of all time. Megan Gilmore will weigh in with her thoughts on the best pop songs. And Megan found out that I went to go see the Taylor Swift Eras Tour cinematic experience. So Megan wants to ask me a whole mess of Taylor Swift questions. I'm ready to answer them. Before I bring you the regional news update, I told you as soon as the Bank of Canada would drop their information about the interest rate, I would give you the update. Bank of Canada holding the key interest rate at 5%. So no change to the interest rate. The Bank of Canada keeping things at 5%. Let's get to the regional news update. Beginning in British Columbia, KPMG has released data about cybercrime in Canada. British Columbian companies were particularly at risk. Nicole Reese takes a closer look. The firm says a survey of 700 Canadian businesses conducted last month revealed more than half of those in Vancouver and on the island had been hit by cyber attacks in the last year. It surveyed 73 small and mid-sized firms in the region, all with annual revenues exceeding $10 million. Of those businesses, 54% also reported paying a ransom to unlock their computers in the past three years. KPMG says six in ten companies in those BC regions say their information technology system make them vulnerable to attacks, but 60% of respondents still did not consider cybersecurity a business priority. Nicole Reese, the Canadian Press. Over to the prairies, Manitoba Premier Wab Canoe says he is pausing some activities at the province's Diagnostic and Surgical Recovery Task Force. The group was set up in 2021 with the goal of reducing wait times in healthcare. Premier Canoe explains why he made the decision. One of the most serious concerns that I've heard articulated was um, a lack of oversight around decision making of this task force and in particular that they were making decisions about spending without having a system-wide view of what's happening in the healthcare system. The group cannot commit to any new initiatives or enter into any new financial agreements while the government considers other healthcare improvements. And finally, in the Atlantic region, eight Scotiabank branches across rural Newfoundland and Labrador are slated to close. Scotiabank confirmed branches in Deer Lake, Flowers Cove, Bonavista, Twillingate, Lewisport, Bergen, Grand Bank, and Whitburn will close. The company says people in those communities will have to travel to other Scotiabank branches if they need in-person services. Bonavista Mayor John Norman says that the town is trying to fight the decision. 
That's your look at the regional news. Here comes Brock Richardson for a sports chat. there's a lot happening in the sports world and one of the things that snuck up on me is the start of the National Basketball Association season. It's almost hard to do a preview. There's so many other things floating around my brain in the sports world. What's floating around your brain in the context of the NBA? Well, I think if we're looking at this from a perspective of a Toronto Raptors situation, I want to know what uh, Darko Royakovic brings to this team, and he's the new coach as he took over for Nick Nurse. Um, this is a guy who is an energy guy. We've seen that an energy guy is what he's been tagged to be. We've seen that he is a player's coach, wants to be involved in you know conversations. And so I want to know, what does that translate to? Does that translate to you know seeing more of a Scotty Barnes handling more of the ball. Does it trend? What does Dennis Schroeder look like with a new acquisition for this year? Like all of these pieces are all coming together. And I look and I say, what can this Toronto Raptors team be with a new coach who seems to have a lot of energy and love for the game of basketball and is putting in a lot of work? I don't know necessarily, Dave, that this translates into a more than a play in series. I'm not sure. I don't see them as a, you know, top seven team as you would have to be to avoid the play-in. So we'll see. But there's a lot of lot of positives rolling around in Toronto Raptors. Land, which... Really? You would call it positives. I would say there's like a general sense of um uh how can I phrase this amongst the fan base? It's like a pessimism. It, it, it's that the team is actively choosing not to go through a rebuild and are just sort of moving some pieces around to be uh, like utterly mediocre. I, like, I don't know if I'm seeing that optimism that you're expressing, Brock. Talking to a lot of Raptors fans, they seem kind of the other direction, being like, what's up with this team? This team is not interesting. Yeah, I guess I should clarify. The optimism is coming from pieces of media trying to sell us on this is what Dennis Schroeder is going to be. Dennis Schroeder is going to be a leader. We're going to see another level from from Scotty Barnes. Malachi Flynn got lots of energy coming. You know, energy. That's what... noted, noted basketball skill and uh, uh, talent uh, energy. Yeah and, the, yeah, and those media pieces you're talking about, it's coming from Bell and Rogers, the two entities that own the team yeah. and are also right. their broadcaster, right? They have a vested interest in saying, we are excited, we the North. The team stinks. Yeah, yeah. No, I... I mean, you know, it'll be interesting to see, you know, what do they get out of Grady Dick, who they just uh, drafted, you know, but it, it there's not really that bona fide piece where you'd say, this is the thing that I'm going to hang on to, which is why the fan base is looking. And I'm optimistically skeptical, but the fan base is looking going, what are we? And that's why you're getting the, the thought process you're getting of like, we don't know what we are, because to me, until we see it on the floor... I, I don't know what to tell you. I'm just listening to what everyone's yeah. saying. And the, and the top thing for Darko uh, and wanting to be here for the team was building relationships. I asked uh, NBA TV uh, personality yesterday on um, Kelly and Rumia. I said, what does that mean? Uh, what, what does that mean? And he says, well, hopefully it translates into more belief and 
more energy, but he oh, said man. hopefully. So, <laughs> oh, so man, <laughs> these sports yeah. cliche energy, belief, like how about skills? Like show me some stats, like uh, split stats, points per game and rebounds and true shooting percentage. Nah, man, energy and belief. That's what this Raptors ship is going to be built on. Uh, Brock, you do mention the rookie Grady Dick out of Kansas. I'm always a little bit leery of uh, players that come out who were great shooters in college can that translate to the pros um it tends to be a little bit of a 50 50 proposition people do seem to like grady dick though they, they they seem to think there's some swagger there and there's the possibility if those if those shots start falling he becomes uh, quite the fan favorite i think more broadly as you zoom out in the nba brock what you're looking at is a year of transition who do you think the oldest active player in the NBA is right now? The oldest active player. This, this shouldn't this shouldn't be super hard. LeBron. LeBron. Think. LeBron yeah. is the oldest active player in the NBA. Kevin Durant is now in his mid-30s. His mid-30s, Brock. Steph Curry and Draymond Green, they are in their 30s. There is going to be a passing of the torch going on here. And part of what you're going to experience is that guys like Nikola Jokic, the two-time defending MVP, as well as a defending champion, people like Giannis Antetokounmpo, former MVP, former champion, this is going to start becoming their league in a really meaningful way and that's why I look at a team like the Milwaukee Bucks who made a huge huge trade to acquire superstar point guard Damian Lillard in the offseason have now become the odds on betting favorites to win the NBA title I'm not all the way convinced that Dame Lillard moves the needle like he would have two or three years ago but it changes the team and it changes certainly the composition of the Eastern Conference, where it's going to be the Milwaukee Bucks and everybody else below them. So what you're looking at this year is what is the changing of the guard? Who is picking up the torch? Is that the Indiana Pacers with a very young team taking a step forward? Is that the continued evolution of the Sacramento Kings and their step forward? How about the Oklahoma City Thunder, helmed by Shea Gilgis-Alexander, Canadian superstar point guard, who've been adding top five draft pick after top five draft pick after top five draft pick, is this the year of new blood, let alone Victor Wembanyama, the first overall pick of the San Antonio Spurs, the giant mutant out of France playing center for them? What is the injection of new blood going to mean for the league this year? Because a lot of the old storylines, the Steph Currys and the LeBron James and the Kevin Durants, I'm bored of it. It's time for something new. Yeah. Yeah, no, I mean, you're, you're absolutely right. And I mean, this this Milwaukee team is a team that, you know, I, I think is going to win the Eastern Conference probably far and away, if I was to guess. I would add for the Phoenix Suns, I, I you know, this is a team that really should be at the top of the West. I mean, you've got, you know, Kevin Kevin Durant, Devin Booker, and Bradley Beal. I know Bradley Beal hasn't started the season yet, but when he gets there, this is another one of those teams that you got to look at and say, they should be here. They should be at the top. To me, I'd love to see a final between... Milwaukee and um, and the Suns just to see what that is because to a me rematch, those are the two, a rematch sort of, from, yeah a rematch from was it was a twenty twenty or twenty twenty one the finals the 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 the, the, the Bucks the Bucks and the Suns. I think it was 21. I think it was 21. I think it was 2021. That was the year that yeah. the Bucks won. Okay, I like it. Brock, 
Give me a rematch from 2021. I like that. Brock, we got to get out of here. Time's, time's up. Got to talk to you tomorrow. We will. That is Brock Richardson at the AMI Sports Desk. I do have to ask Brock about his new puppy at some point uh, sooner rather than later. Maybe we'll dedicate the segment to that. But coming up next, there is a housing crisis. There is a climate crisis. What's a solution that can address housing and climate change? Journalist Arno Kopecki will explore this question. This is Now with Dave Brown on AMI-tv. Welcome back. It's Now with Dave Brown on AMI-tv. Two of the biggest issues facing Canada are housing and climate. The two topics are often discussed separately, but are they actually two sides of the same coin? This is a question that journalist Arno Kopecki has been considering, and Arno is here to share some of those thoughts with you. Hey, good morning, Arno. Good morning, Dave. How are you? Arno, I'm great. I've oftentimes described this as a little bit of a false binary, the issue of housing Uh, versus climate. Where do you land on that binary? It has been driving me crazy, Dave. Uh, You hear top, top line headline people screaming about the housing crisis, but never do they mention climate in that category. And then you hear people screaming about climate change, but they never mention housing. And I'm like, these are the same thing. Um, so that's how I feel. <laughs> and I think it represents a huge opportunity for society and politicians if they can see it and grasp it. And right in the middle of that, there's also just economy, right? Economic downturn, yeah. recession, yeah. cost of living, sustainability Inflation. and affordable housing yeah. are like it's, part are all part of that coin too. It's all here, Dave. We've got the solution to society in our hands right now. <laughs> okay. Yeah, I, <laughs> okay, I accept your broad thesis here. No need to get me on board anymore. But what <laughs> what are some of the solutions that could be forward uh, could be put forward that apply to both those files, the housing file and the climate yeah. file? Sure. So it's it's, you know, I'm obviously being a bit facetious. These are big ideas which are famously easy to discuss over coffee and very <laughs> difficult to implement. But uh, you know, so In a nutshell, first of all, just to give viewers an idea, 40% or so of emissions, of of global emissions and Canada's emissions, come from building and houses. Both the process of construction, which involves a ton of energy, and and then also once the buildings are built, the homes and the skyscrapers and everything in between, they're just emitting, you know, we're using gas to heat these homes, electricity to run the lights, um, you name it, you know, our hot water Uh, It is a huge source of emissions. And now we have this crisis where we have to build about five, six million homes, almost six million homes in the next decade, before the next decade, just to keep up with demand right now. Because as you don't need me to tell you, uh, not just homelessness, but also cost of housing, everything is just, it's insane right now. So if we can build these homes that we need, both affordably, but also in a way that is actually good for the environment instead of bad for the environment, uh, there is a huge opportunity to tackle two birds with one stone. Now, Ontario just did a very high uh, high profile uh, exercise in how not to do it, which is to sprawl into the wetlands and the greenlands that act as, as, as sinks for carbon and also our floodplains, so building houses where they are very vulnerable. 
The entire goal here is to build houses where they will not burn down or wash away in a flood or become hot heat traps when the next heat dome hits. You want to build them, uh, you want to infill cities, so densify, basically, and also you want to use materials that are, uh, you know, climate friendly, so not just clear cutting a whole bunch of forest to to build the next uh, six million homes. And you want to, you know, solar panels, energy efficiency, you can build houses in a way that they actually feed energy back into the grid instead yeah, of sucking yeah. energy out of it. So I think that the, the climate and environmental principles, you want them to be both resilient so they can take a heat wave, they, can, they won't be in the line of the next forest fire on the edge of the city, but also you want them to be not contributing more to the housing, you know, that you don't want, let's take that number down of 40% greenhouse gas contributor, we could bring that down to, you know, 5, 10%, whatever, carbon neutral. Yeah, people so oftentimes look at densification as, oh, well, that's the Toronto and Vancouver model for the last 30 years of building one-bedroom condos. No, 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 no. You can do density in ways that are actually effective and livable as well. Totally, totally. Yeah, there. I mean, uh, look, no, look. Go. Anybody who's been traveling a little bit outside of Canada and North America, uh, Europe, cities like you know Amsterdam and Paris, you name it. Uh, even Mexico City. There's a lot of cities around the world that have done this. They've got beautiful row housing. Uh, this is a matter of urban zoning, really, like allowing for density and also sort of building building something that you're going to tear down. I was speaking to a builder uh, in Victoria, BC, who was saying, you know, 80% of the homes that he demolishes are perfectly fine, uh, but they're just being, you know, torn down and rebuilt in the same way because somebody has a different vision. Um, Mm. That's what kind of needs to change. And that's what requires real political vision to be able to zone and build uh, in ways that will, you know, these buildings will last for 100 years. I mean, oh. that sounds crazy, but it's actually doable. <laughs> Arno, you said the magic word there. You said politics. Uh, these <laughs> yeah. are topics that politicians like to talk about. But where's the political opportunity here? Well, I think this is very, you know, it. I actually don't think it's pie in the sky to call this a bipartisan issue. First of all, mm. nobody has to mention the word oil and gas. We don't have to fight the oil sands. We don't have to go after production. This is about housing and density and cutting through red tape, things that conservatives love, for example. And you don't hear me say a lot of good things about Pierre Polyev on this show, but I will say that his housing plan is super aggressive and he is really t- tackling nimbyism, not in my backyard. So he's saying you cities who 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 refuse, you know, city councils, because this is really comes down to municipal zoning a lot of times and, and urban jurisdictions. So Pierre Polyev has said any city that tries to like refuse to allow uh, single family homes becoming duplexes and, and quad and, and, you know, it, it increasing density, He's going to attack that uh, in ways that I might not necessarily agree with, but the idea is good. And he's really Mm -hmm. promoting transit to these houses because you can't ask people to live uh, in car-free ways and then not provide them transit and alternatives like that. So, you know, the conservatives are already part of the way there. They want to densify and increase transit to to these places, which is a huge part of the solution. The final piece of the puzzle that conservatives maybe are not all the way there is building these homes in in green manner. I think the risk is that you just slap up a bunch of cheap wooden houses, uh, sure, densely, and townhouses, but then they have to, you know, then they kind of fall apart in 20, 30 years, and then you have to do this all over again. So the idea 
ideas to seize this moment uh, and build these homes densely, but also uh, sustainably so that they can be, you know, housing generations of, of Canadians. Yeah, it's a quantitative problem, but if you don't address it qualitatively as well, if you don't build houses that are meant to last or that are so obviously cheaply constructed, people aren't yeah. going to want to live in them. So yeah, you have to be mindful of that as well. Arno, I think about the city where I grew up, which is Montreal, Quebec. You go through all these neighborhoods around the downtown core that have beautiful triplexes and quadplexes and row houses that are not aesthetically unpleasing. In fact, they're quite aesthetically beautiful, but they're also 800, 900, 1,000, 1,200 square feet. Like, like we can do, we can walk and chew gum at the same time here. Yes, totally, Dave. Totally. I, I think it, it's slightly a new uh, sort of a, a new way of thinking for a lot of Canadians. You know, I, I grew up in a house with a yard and a, and a backyard and, and it was awesome, you know, and I think that has been the dream for a lot of people. But I think if you spend time, you know, now I live in a townhouse, I don't have a yard, but I can walk and I'm at a coffee shop in two minutes and my, you know, I'm at a fruit, you know, I can buy fruit and, and groceries a three minute walk away. And there's, you know, there's pubs and it's just this vibrant cityscape. And, and, People, I think that's a really appealing way to live once once you actually experience it, rather than you know uh, these sprawl, you know these huge, you know when you live a half an hour drive from the closest school or or grocery store, uh, but you have this big home. Um, I, I think you're making a trade off there that people uh, don't quite appreciate, and, and and you have to sort of go and see other models of, of of ways of living that to to really yeah. appreciate how good it can be to live in more dense areas. And Arnold, you also described the notion of maybe be a little bit more like Phoenix, Arizona, and have everybody put solar panels on their roofs, right? Like, like anytime yes. there's a new build going on or there's a new row house being built, we're not saying it's going to singular, like singularly create the energy efficiency or the energy production you need, but it's going to offset some of the needs. Totally. These are incremental things and there's no one silver bullet. And I'm not saying like solar panels on every roof is going to be the, 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 but there's heat pumps, there's solar panels, there's, there's, you know, great insulation. There's so many things you can do to lower the impact of, of housing. Now I will say that the thing that makes the, the, the gear and the wrenches or the stick and the gears or whatever the metaphor here is, um, is cost. It is generally going to be a bit more of an upfront cost to build these homes. Not as much as one might think, especially if you can get this stuff done at scale and, you know, prefab, mm -hmm. you know, modular housing. Uh, but that is always the trade-off with environmental solutions, I think. And that is the, the, the big challenge is, you know, nobody wants to put that invest and right, understandably, you know, nobody has the money often to invest in these long-term solutions. And so things get built cheaply uh, in the short term. But then, like I said, 20 years later, you got to do it all over again. So I think that is the real challenge to this political opportunity is how can we create these funding models and subsidize this in a way that it, it that it can actually get done. And and that's you know, that is my my hope and, and dream that, that that this could people can find those models because they're they're out there. It is doable, but it really is going to take some creative and aggressive leadership. Arno, time is not our friend this morning. I know you wanted to give some love to Housing Task Force. What do you say oh, yeah, we actually right. what do you say we actually make this a part two? When you come back in four weeks, let's continue this conversation. Cause I have more to say and I kind of feel like you have more to say on this one as well. I'm great. I'm super into that. You just did my homework for me, man. <laughs> That's fantastic. Arno, thank you for this. Okay. Thanks, Dave. Ah, that's Arno Kopecki, a journalist based out in Vancouver, British Columbia, coming up after the break. Billboard 
has released their list of the best 500 pop songs of all time. Megan Gilmore is going to weigh in with her thoughts. I've got thoughts too. I shared this news story last Friday. Didn't get all my swipes in, so I got work to do here as well. And I saw the Taylor Swift Eras Tour uh, cinematic experience last week, so Megan gets to ask me anything she wants in regard to my thoughts on the Taylor Swift movie. This is Now with Dave Brown on AMI-tv. It's now with Dave Brown on AMI-tv. Just a reminder that you can get involved on voting in the daily poll whenever you feel like it. Even if you're catching this segment on the podcast two weeks later, you can get involved in the daily poll by sending feedback to the show. So the poll question today is all about pedestrian pet peeves. I'm asking you, what's your biggest pedestrian pet peeve is it sidewalk clutter large groups of people bike paths or other you're always welcome to go off the board and don't forget if at accessible media on twitter is not your thing if at accessible media inc is not your thing on facebook you can also chime in via feedback at ami.ca that's the email address feedback at ami.ca or pick up the phone 1-866-509-4545 1-866-509-4545 megan gilmore before you jump into the topic du jour for our conversation about pop music, you had a little pedestrian uh, pet peeve of your own yesterday. Yeah, well, I, yeah, well, actually, it was Monday night, and for those of you who are watching on TV, you might notice that I'm not wearing my glasses. No, I did not have a run-in with some mystical healer or anything. I had a run-in with a pole on the sidewalk corner one of those bright yellow ones i think it like holds up an electrical wire or something i don't know so there's there's that straight uh vertical pole and then there's like another one that comes up diagonally like a triangle yep and yep. it's thinner that one yeah that's the one that i walked into and i guess i was walking quickly because i had an appointment at a gym actually oh wow. um and i fell and my glasses fell and they broke. Like like the, the lens popped out of my left eye and it's oh, chipped. Man. It is oh, broken man. off. Oh. Uh, yes. Megan, I'm sorry. There are very few feelings as frustrating as uh, broken glasses. Are you okay though? Are you doing okay after yeah, the fall? Yeah, I'm fine. There's no changes to my vision. I can actually like operate fairly well-ish without my glasses, but it's just like realizing like, oh, like when I was a kid, I hated these things and now they're gone and this is a weird <laughs> adjustment. Yeah, it's an aesthetic thing. It's one of the reasons why I always yeah. wear my uh, tinted glasses when I'm out doing public things because for whatever reason, it makes me self-conscious when I don't have my glasses on. Yeah. So, uh, and Megan... like, how will people know that I can't see them? <laughs> All right, Megan, let's go from side Walk clutter and obstructions and our own uh, falls and running out of hit points as we get older to the topic at hand, which is Billboard releasing their list of the best 500 pop songs ever. Yeah. Whitney Houston took the top spot with I Want to Dance with Somebody, Dancing Queen by ABBA, and My Girl by The Temptations rounded out the top three. 
Megan, you are a reporter for Canadian Affairs, but you don't limit yourself. You don't limit yourself to talking about politics and disability policy. You also love yourself some pop music. So, first and foremost, right off the top, Whitney Houston, I want to dance with somebody. I find this to be a totally acceptable pop song to be number one. It might not be my personal favorite, but I think it, it ticks the boxes. Even just thinking about the song makes me want to start singing it, which is sort of my criteria for a pop song. Yeah, I think that's fair. Like, I, I'm not the biggest, um, like, connoisseur of Whitney Houston's discography. This is not the song of hers that I thought would have... I, I, I This wasn't the one I probably would have picked. Um, but, yeah, I, I think it's I, fine. I, would, I, will, um, I Will Always Love You, is that the one you were thinking? Yeah, maybe. Or I'm trying to remember the other one I was thinking of that I would have done. Um, anyway. <laughs> yeah, I was a little surprised. But I, I was okay with it. I was like, okay, fine. Like, we like Whitney. Like, you know. So here's, here, here's, so, so I, I've, I've tried to go through the whole 500, but to a certain degree, so Megan. Yeah, but, but to a certain degree, when you're ranking 500 things, like, it almost doesn't really matter, right? Like, like, what's the difference between, oh, I'm the 369th best pop song in the, of all time versus the 275th? It's like, who cares? Yeah, it's also weird. Like, I, I took some notes as I was, um, reading them to see where certain things ranked in comparison to other songs, right? Um, so let's take the song You're So Vain, right? Carly Simon's song, classic, yeah. classic song. This is Taylor Swift dropping boyfriends before Taylor Swift was born. <laughs> like, this is the thing. That is 140 on the list, whereas a personal favorite of mine from my childhood, Hanson's Oombop, is 61. Yeah. You're like, that's just interesting. I don't yeah. know how to explain that. Yeah, like how do you distinguish sort of the 80 different spots that exist there, right? Or what makes I Want It That Way by the Backstreet Boys, you know, 55 spots better than Mbop, you know? Like there, the, the, yeah. there's not a lot to it that necessarily makes sense one of my observations as I went through, especially the top 100, once I kind of decided, Megan, that what, that 500 to 99, like, didn't really matter, I really drilled into the top 100. A serious lack of country music. Now, I've confessed oh, yeah. to you before that I am a very recent convert to country music, but I can acknowledge the idea that really only Shania Twain's I Feel Like a Woman is one of, like, pretty much the only country songs in the whole top 100 strikes me as, like, a real lacking of diversity in genre. Yes. Well, first of all, Dave, welcome. Welcome to the country music family. <laughs> we will take converts whenever and however we can get them. But yeah, I thought that was really interesting too, particularly because this is the Billboard Top 100, Billboard Magazine based in America, I believe. Country music is the musical genre of the United States. It is, the, and there are cultural battles in America that are fought within the lyrics of country songs and competing songs on the charts. That has happened recently within this year. So in terms of like a cultural product, love it or hate it, it's actually really important to America. It's there. Um, Johnny Cash, he had one entrance on this list. The, the, whole, the, whole, the whole top 500. Yeah, whole top five. Only one Johnny Cash. He was the first country song, I think, to make it on there. Somebody can double check this. He was number 388. The <laughs> Ring of Fire was number 388. 
Yeah, the, you know, they, they had their methodology here in regards to what qualified, but there wasn't really a clear methodology on what made something rank higher than anything else. And it begs this question that you and I have had before, which is what is pop music anyway? Because the rules changed a little bit in the 1990s when it stopped being simply about record sales. There were some radio plays that became involved, and that's all of a sudden when you saw a lot of hip-hop songs and country music songs starting to make their way into the billboard charts more frequently or at least getting themselves to the top of the charts and that once again has been revolutionized inside the on-demand streaming area era where now streaming counts towards the billboard charts as well which i think is super relevant because it really puts it in the hands quite literally of the people but Overall, this list does beg this question where there is hip-hop really well represented across the top 100, country not so much. It makes me ask this question of like, what is pop music anyway? Because mm. even like Elton John, for example, there's only one Elton John song, your song, in the top 100. And I'm like, yeah. Elton John has a really significant place in the history of pop music, and it doesn't appear to be represented on this list. Yeah, he had two songs in the whole list. I loved Billy Joel had zero. Wow. Uh, if you want to do wow. the whole Elton John, Billy Joel. I'm not wading into that debate. I'm just saying Elton John only had two songs and Billy Joel had zero. And I would have expected more Elton John as well. It's just all very, very confusing to me. And they, they do mention this. Uh, there's like this little preamble to the list where they talk about the definition of pop music is always changing. And they talk about how it just means whatever's popular. So that... It's hard to make that for like a large group of people, right? Like I have friends who pretty much exclusively listen to classical music. Not mm -hmm. popular to me, but in their household, super popular. Yeah. Um, I am also like a child of the 90s, early 2000s, but I also grew up in um, conservative evangelical Christian um, environments where there is like contemporary Christian music. That is a, a genre of music. Mm -hmm. And like those songs are incredibly popular for those of us who grew up with them, like deeply ingrained into my soul. Mm -hmm. I'm not going to expect that on a Billboard Top 500, but what I'm saying is there's whole genres of specific types of music that are very popular to people and they are very passionate about it. And it's like, it's not yeah. necessarily always pop music although in some cases it is and well some of those bands did cross over like in the pop punk oh, yeah. world mxpx crossed over in the hard yes. rock world creed crossed over like they switch foot yeah switch foot yeah lots none the richer six pence none the richer kiss me is not on this list yeah so yeah so again omissions 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 all over the place and you also identified something there megan which is the difficulty to rank across eras and speaking mm -hmm. of eras this past weekend i saw the taylor swift eras tour concert movie and i thought who better to give this opportunity to than the ranking journalist in the now with dave brown family megan you can ask me anything you want to about the eras tour movie and my uh, newfound love of taylor swift Wow. Well, are you now in a love story with Taylor Swift? Speak I, now, Dave. You I, can tell us all your thoughts. I, Has it uh, kept you up at midnight? I, okay, the puns the puns are flowing there, and I love it. Well done. Uh, Megan, I actually do believe that uh, the way that I have sort of fallen for Taylor Swift in the last seven days means that one day she might have to write a song about me as if I were Jake Gyllenhaal. Like, this, this was oh, really? just an incredible show, and the one thing it reminded me is that just because I don't know a song by name doesn't mean I haven't heard it a million times. I went in thinking, I know like four or five songs, Turns out I know like half of her library of singles. Yeah.
Yeah, yeah, yeah. I could have told you that before you went. So I do have many questions. Number one, did you get a friendship bracelet? No, I did not get a friendship bracelet, but the two women sitting behind me changed bracelets with the two women sitting behind them. Okay, do you know what was on the bracelets? Did no, you? I did not. No. I did not. I, I was like one of the only men in that room. I was trying okay. to avert my gaze as much as possible so that I wouldn't make anybody feel uncomfortable. Understandable. Uh, was any, were there any other men? Uh, there was one other man uh, who was wearing uh, glitter all over himself. Okay, I was going to ask if he was wearing a Travis Kelsey <laughs> No, but I thought about that. Okay, okay. Um, okay, so I'm actually really fascinated by this movie. Um, I kind of want to go, even though I haven't kept up with Taylor Swift as much uh, in the more recent years. I really was on top of her for her first three albums, actually. That was, that was like an event. Um, I heard from other reviews of it that sometimes they would cut the song. Like, you wouldn't get the full song. Is this true in some cases? There was some editing. Apparently, the full era's tour, the show is about three and a half hours. The movie oh. clocked in a little closer to two and a half. So there was a little bit of editing. I found it particularly jarring during her performance of Bad Blood from the 1989 record, which is yeah. my personal favorite Taylor Swift song. But there was no Kendrick Lamar to rap the verses. So without Kendrick there to okay. rap, I understand why maybe you had to make some cuts. But yes, there were some edits made to uh, tighten some songs. Um, most surprising song to you that made the cut for the movie? So again, I, I because I wasn't so familiar with her work going into the movie, I'm going to rearrange your question a little bit to okay. the song I did not know that I've been singing yes. along to for about five straight days now. It's a song off Evermore called Champagne Problems, which is just oh. her and a piano, and it made my uh, spine tingle when she performed it. It is a beautiful song. It's very uh, heart-wrenching. Very, very, very heart-wrenching. Um, we're not going to tell you what the story of that song is about, but it is sad. Woo! You were just like, wow, that happened, and now we're all sad. I think Evermore deserves some more love. As somebody who kind of got off the T-Swift uh, train for a while, um, Ever, I really deeply appreciate Evermore. Uh, Coney Island is just a really beautiful song. Um, it's really great. Everyone should go listen to Evermore. Okay, look at this. Yes. Did you have a favorite era? Do you have a favorite era? I mean, is it really crappy if I just pick red because the songs are also darn catchy? No, you can like red. I because like that was obviously one of her huge, huge records and like one of her big yeah. like launching pad records. And yes. there was one song called Trouble that I didn't know uh, was off that record or that she oh, performed yeah. it at all. Uh, like I didn't know that was her song. And the second I saw her doing that during the show and listening during the show, I was like, oh, this song's super catchy. And I may have. Yeah, um, I didn't know you were trouble when you walked in. Mm -hmm. I did. Yeah. Mm -hmm. uh, and I, yeah, and I may have. And I may have uh, later that night closed all the blinds at my house and done my own little dance routine to it. Just FYI. Might have. Are there? Is there video evidence of that? New, new. So, someone uh, might have dropped it like it was hot. Although at my age, it's more <laughs> that I place it down very gently. Okay, but drop it like it's hot. By the way, everyone, that is on the five hundred, the Billboard's top five hundred. <laughs> Snoop Dogg and my guy Pharrell. Megan, time for one more Taylor Swift question. If you've got one. Oh, okay. Um, I just want to know, like, how are you streaming her now? Like, are you consuming more Taylor Swift after you went to this movie? Yes, I have added a couple songs to my YouTube playlist, and I've added a couple songs to some Spotify playlists, including my liked songs list. And I actually am thinking that I might go see this movie again. That's how much I enjoyed it. Wow.
Wow, that is that's a big deal. That, yeah, that's, that's a big deal. I, I just thought it was so well done and she was so great and so charming and the music was so good and I had such a fun time and I love the idea, Megan, of doing major concert series and making them available at the end of the tour for people to access because there's a big difference between saving 20 to $30 to go see a show than spending $1,000 to go see a show. I, I, I know that it's different. It'll never replicate the in-arena uh, or stadium experience, but I think in terms of like a cost accessibility point of view uh there's a big big difference in terms of the cash and i also love what she did structurally with the eras i wish more artists would do that with their tours when you've got five six seven eight nine albums let's break it down per album mm -hmm. in your performance mm -hmm. so if i'm going to take mm -hmm. a pee break and you're playing an album that i don't like or i don't know i can go to my pee break and not miss a song that i like Right, it's fair. And like sometimes I'll get excited if somebody starts playing a deep cut. I'm like, ooh, are you going to do more deep cuts from this time? Let me know. And then the next song is their current single. And I'm like, oh. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Megan, thank you for indulging me this morning. I'm sorry about your glasses. Um, thank you. Thank you. You're welcome. Um, you and Taylor can write a song about the ballad of my boss. Glasses. Well, we'll do, we'll do our best to work together. Uh, the, me and me and my girl Taylor, although Travis seems to have that thing worked out right now. Uh, Megan, have a great day. You too. That's Megan Gilmore, a reporter for Canadian Affairs. Coming up after the break, you'll find out what's coming up on Kelly and Rumia later today. And Elizabeth Moeller has a question about uh, social media companies and maybe some of their nefarious efforts to keep you perpetually online. This is Now with Dave Brown on AMI-tv. It's now with Dave Brown on AMI-tv. Only a couple minutes left in this show. Don't worry, live programming heading your way 2 p.m. Eastern time on AMI-tv. It's another edition of Kelly and Ramya, and Ramya Emuthan's here to preview the show. Hey, good morning, Ramya. Good morning, Dave. We have lots on the show today, starting with some information about the Actors Guild. They've set some guidelines and restrictions on Halloween costumes. So we're going to find out exactly uh, oh. what the rules are and why that happened with the Actors Guild uh, when we talk entertainment with Corinne Van Dusen. Also, you know about this, the Royal Winter Fair, the Royal Agricultural Winter Fair. It's back uh, for another year. Community reporter Stephen Ricci is going to tell us more about that, but it's a staple around this time um, for Torontonians. <laughs> <laughs> and we're talking with actor, or sorry, artistic director uh, Joelle Peters about the 36th edition of Wisa Gicek Begins to Dance. It's returning in November. It's a show uh, that we want to learn more about. Awesome. Thank you, Ramya. Stay right there, though, because Elizabeth Moeller has a question for you all about social media. And Elizabeth, this comes from a lawsuit being filed south of the border with social media companies. Yes, Meta is being sued for promoting harmful content, including content around eating disorders, as well as for making their platforms addictive and contributing to teen and youth mental health into that crisis. So I wanted to chat today and I want to ask you, Remy, to kick us off. How do you engage with social media? Uh, I to be honest with you, I don't engage much with social media. I think that it's the era of like 
scrolling on TikTok and scrolling on Instagram and uh, just scrolling in general over social media, just going through these rabbit holes, uh, kind of passed me. The stage where I could have engaged passed by me. And so now I just do it for, you know, particular things or sometimes I get into the binge mode, but it's not necessarily <laughs> a, a, a big, it's not really like an everyday, all part of my lifestyle thing. But there's so much that people have to consider now because um, screen time is probably one of the biggest challenges that parents face with their kids, right? And and especially young kids. Yeah, research is typically five to 10 years behind real life. That's one of the unfortunate realities of actually gathering data and synthesizing data. So a lot of what you have learned about social media that information is really only four or five years old in terms of the damage that it can have on young people, even on elder, like, I, I, it's not just young people. I think sometimes there's this like, there's this lost idea of, oh, social media is only harming the brains of young people. Like, no, it's harming the brains of everyone. It's a really horrible place. And that's what begs that question, Elizabeth, and how you engage with social media even knowing that it can be a toxic place. Um, I am a lurker. I used to be a heavy poster. I'm now just a lurker. But it's my understanding from some new research that's come out is that if you really want to have the maximum impact of social media in a positive way, you have to engage and you have to engage positively. Not flaming wars in the, uh, not flame wars in the comment section or just lurking around. If you're going to use it, you actually have to do the social part, not just the passive part. That's a really interesting point. And I think for me, one of the things I've tried to do is make what I'm posting intentional. So not just resharing or retweeting, but actually talking about causes I care about in a positive way or providing constructive suggestions. But I think another thing that that for me begs a big question when I think about how I engage is the accessibility piece. And I know that's not quite what the what the you know original um thread of our conversation is, but I think it bears thinking about if it's going to be labor for me to have to go on to Instagram and not see pictures with captions, I'm not going to do it. So I'm very intentional about the, the platforms I engage in and how they are in terms of user friendliness. Yeah, Ramya, that's no surprise, right? The actual usability of technology. Uh, that's a familiar chorus that we can sing to. Yes, absolutely. We're still kind of downloading things as we go, uh, changes in leadership on different platforms and thinking, oh, dear, this is not always getting better. Uh, yeah. You're becoming more user-friendly, sadly. Uh, so you're just pushing people out of platforms. But also to your point, Dave, about engaging um, positively and not lurking or not being negative, I find that to be very difficult to do because you you have to think bigger yes. impact or impacting some individual who's going to run into that comment out of the 60 thousand others and that's hard to think about yeah it's super easy yeah. to get involved in the argument it's uh not always easy to just sort of go uh one step above but yeah when i read that research i thought to myself like maybe it is time to rethink the way that i engage on social because i'm on social a lot I'm, I'm literally lurking to try and produce content for the show right i'm trying to think about what people are talking about what's out there and that can be extremely difficult uh, to do as uh not just a lurker you know you want to get involved anyway that that's the thought for today that's all the time there is for today. Thank you, Elizabeth. Thank you, Ramya. Until you and I hang out again tomorrow morning at 9 a.m. Eastern Time, I'm Dave Brown reminding you to play safe, play fair, but don't forget to have some fun. Hey, 
Dave Brown here. If you enjoy this podcast portion of our show, remember you can watch it live every day at 9 a.m. Eastern time on AMI-tv. Join me every couple weeks for the Outdoors with Lawrence Gunther podcast, where we learn about outdoor tech and tips. Plus, we look at news affecting the environment. AMI's Outdoors with Lawrence Gunther is available from your favorite podcast provider.